once. Never got towed off once. Never had to hide my face and look at the ground once and think, oh no, I'm in trouble. I, I don't know how that feels. Never happened to me. Do we think that's true? Is that the case? Well, and this wasn't planned. I'm seeing just now, I won't point them out, at least one school teacher I had and at least one Sunday school teacher I had. So they can tell you that is not true. In fact, boys and girls, it's quite the opposite. Quite often, growing up, quite often even now, I still get rouse from my mum. I still get rouse, I still got rouse from the Sunday school teachers and from school teachers. There was times when I was too loud, too talkative, too wriggly in my seat. I was told to shh, to sit down, to be quiet. There's one time in particular I want to talk about. I was five or six, and I was running around, as I did, and my parents had a beautiful glass crystal bowl in the middle of a sitting room. It was beautiful. A wedding present from a dear, dear friend of my family. This bow had survived for 10 years before I appeared in the scene. Well, that bow didn't survive that Saturday afternoon. My elbow hit it, the bow hit the floor, and there was a thousand bits of glass all over the floor. Now, of course, I was scared. I don't want to tell mum and dad because they loved that bow. It was polished daily. It was precious to them. They loved it so much. So I didn't tell them. They were in our room. They didn't hear it somehow. So I just kept quiet. But that was dangerous. There's now bits of glass all over the floor. Of course, what happened as I tried to sneak out? I stood on bits of glass. I got hurt. I got cut. All because I said nothing. I was too scared to tell my parents, too scared to tell them I had done something very bad. In a wee while together, we're going to read in the book of Hebrews, the chapter of Hebrews and uh, chapter 4. We're going to look together at the, the, the wonderful good news, and this is for mums and dads too, and dads and granddads, that Jesus tells us that if we know him, that if we love him, that if we call him our saviour, even when we find ourselves doing things that are silly and doing things that have caused problems, the Bible calls that sin when we do things that are bad against God. Sometimes and quite often, we are all tempted to hide our face and to not tell what happened. We're too scared to go to Jesus and say, I've done something bad here. I've gone wrong again. I've messed up again. I've done something silly again. Like me and my bowl, we just say nothing. But that sometimes leads to things getting even worse. If I had just called my mum and dad, but I've come in, I'd have got a row probably, but I cleaned up the mess, it'd be fine. But I didn't do that. I kept quiet. I got hurt. I cut my foot. Even more mess on the floor then, even more chaos for my poor parents to deal with. Boys and girls, as you grow up, and perhaps go to school and go to university and leave home. Sometimes you will do things and say things and think things that you know are bad, that are wrong. Even now, I know you do that. We all do. The Bible tells us when we do things and say things and think things that are wrong, we don't try to hide them from Jesus because he knows anyway. He sees us anyway. We go to him. So we'll see in a second, as we read the Bible, we go to him. And he promises, if we come to him honestly, that he's done all the work that he can forgive us. He promises not to be angry at us, not to, not to have a go at us. In fact, we, we, last time we were together, we, we read in John that Jesus promises never to leave or forsake us. He promises never to forget about us, never to leave us behind. Even when we do things against him all the time, he says, come to me, and he forgives us. Even at a young age, even when you're very young and you think, oh, I've got years to learn this, listen now, listen to what Jesus says. He tells us, even in this chapter in the Hebrews, 
but he is the one who has done all things for his people. So we don't have to hide our faces. We don't have to be ashamed. We can come to him and he promises to hear us, to forgive us. He promises to love us. Okay, hands together now. Head down, is it, for the Lord's Prayer. We can say it together. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Let's now turn to God's word. Book of Hebrews and chapter 4. Book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Let's hear the word of God. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they are not united by faith with those who listened. For we have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Give praise to God for his holy and his perfect word. For a short time uh, together, considering the verses we have from verses 14 down to verse 16, we'll take just verse 14 for our text, but looking at verses 14 to 16, verse 14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. I know in years past you've already gone through together as a congregation the the book of Hebrews in various segments and sections so I won't labour the point but a brief summary of course the book of Hebrews it's written to a a people 
a congregation of those who were, as we see from the title of the book, who, who were uh, Jewish by heritage, who had come to know Jesus, come to love Jesus, but who, as we see throughout the book, are being tempted slowly and being drawn, drawn back, tempted back to the old ways, to the sights, to the sounds, tempted away from this Jesus, from the Savior who they know, who they love, back to the old patterns, back to the temple worship, with respect back to the, the sights and the smells and the bells, quite literally, back to the incense, back to the temple, back to the garments, back to all that they once came from. And the writer to the Hebrews again and again reminds them that in Jesus they have someone better, something better, a better saviour, a greater saviour than anything, anyone they've ever found or can find anywhere else. In our section here in chapter 4, we've just read about the rest. There's not enough time to go into the detail of a chapter we've read together anyway. But in general, in summary, of course, we've read that God offered, as it were, his people. He offered Israel rest, but because we see in verse 7, because of their disobedience, and verse 4 and verse 5, the whole section of their disobedience, their ongoing disobedience, they did not enter the rest God has set aside for them. And that's clear as we come to the final section of this chapter, our verses today, verses 14 to verse 16, we, we see that the final rest of God's people is found in Jesus and in him alone. For a very short time, as we look at verses 14 down to verse 16, I want us to have in our minds, Christians, be reminded here again, here at fresh this day, that we have a saviour, that you have a high priest, a great high priest, who has done all the work for you, that you find your rest in him, that in him you have confidence to come before the throne of grace. And we'll see what that means for us as we go on in these verses. Again, for those listening who as of yet don't know Jesus as your saviour, listen to these verses. Hear what it is to know him, to have one who has done all the work. Come and hear what it is to, to know what it is to rest, to rest in him, to find a rest you won't find anywhere else in the world. Look at verses 14 to verse 16 under three very general headings. First of all, verse 14, where we see the access we have in Jesus. Access. Then verse 15, we see the awareness of our high priest. Access, awareness. Then finally, verse 16, we see our approach. How we approach the throne of grace. Access, awareness, and approach. So first of all, look with me please to verse 14 where we see access. At the end of verses 11 down to verse 13, if we look again to these verses, we see in verse 12, we see in verse 13, the reality that we stand before a holy God. We know that. A God who sees all things, who knows all things. Verse 13, it is a verse which is so strong which describes the reality of our holy God. Verse 13, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He is holy. He is sovereign. He is God. We're reminded that no creature, that no one, that nothing can escape his sight. Nothing can escape his holy view of us. The reality is if we stop reading at verse 13, if we leave this building just now, having read down to verse 13 and finishing our, our time together there, we would leave being reminded that we worship a holy God, a God who is full of holiness, a God who knows all things, who sees all things. We'd be in no doubt as to our position before him as creatures who are exposed, as creatures can hide nothing from him. These things are all true, but we leave this place today with very little hope. 
these statements leave us asking, yes, they're true, but leave us asking, where's the hope? How do we cope? In the light of verses 11 down to verse 13, I was reminded of just who we are before a holy God. The question is, what do we do in the light of such unapproachable holiness? How do we cope? What's our answer? The writer of Hebrews, following on from these statements, he brings us, in verse 14 onwards, back to the only source we have, the only one who stood blameless in the sight of the Father, the only one able to represent his people. We see that at the start of verse 14, that first phrase, since then. That's a connecting phrase that lets us know that all that's about to be said connects to the previous verses. We said all this, and because we said this, because this is true, so then this is the case. We worship a holy God who sees all, who knows all. We stand before him exposed. And because that's true, verse 14, since then, we have this truth also. Our only hope, as we see in these verses, our only hope as we come before a holy and perfect God as our great high priest. Dear brothers and sisters, as we come together around his words, they listen carefully as we're reminded of how our high priest gives us access to the throne of grace. Of course, all the faithful high priests throughout the years of Israel, all the faithful high priests who did their job as best they could, who served as best they could, all their service, of course, was tainted by their own sin. All their service was eventually cut short, as it were, by the ultimate working out of sin. By death, they all died. They all passed away. Every high priest one day passed away. We're reminded of that in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Speaking of Jesus, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. We have an eternal high priest who gives us eternal access to our Father. In verse 14, we see three ways in which our high priest gives us access. Three distinctive features about our great high priest. That means we have access to the Father through him. First of all, we can note in verse 14 the name he is given. Since then, we have a great high priest. Not just our high priest, but our great high priest. This title separates him from even the best, the most faithful, the previous human high priests. Those who served well, who served faithfully, but at the end of the day, we're still tainted by sin, who still could not serve forever. In Jesus, we have the great high priest. He is superior to all who came before him. He alone is called great. He alone is highly exalted. Because he is greater than all the previous high priests, he has done what they could never, ever hope to achieve what they could never hope to do. He performed in his own body the final sacrifice. Because he is our great high priest, because he is the final high priest, because he is the top, because there is no other high priest like him, because he is the full, perfect example of the high priest, we know that through his finished work, he has granted us access to the Father, access to the throne of grace. There's even more than that in this verse, even more evidence, if you like, of the access we have in Jesus. We see that in the next phrase here, who has passed through the heavens. A great high priest who has passed through the heavens. This phrase just builds on the previous phrase and gives us more evidence as to the access we have. As we said, of course, this letter was written uh, to a congregation with a Jewish uh, background. 
they, they were Jews. They grew up in a Jewish culture. And we know um, from secular writings, but also we know from Scripture, we see Paul discussing the third heaven, him being taken up to the third heaven in his writing. We see and we know that, that in the thought of a day, in the culture of a day, there was levels, as it were, uh, to heaven. Now, whether they thought that was actual levels, whether they thought that was just a turn of phrase versus discussion, that's not what's important for us today. The reality is we are reminded here that we have a high priest who passed through the heavens, who made it all the way to the highest of places, as we'll sing uh, in our final psalm, Lord willing, in Psalm 110, we have a high priest who's at the right hand of the Father, who's exalted to the highest place of all, who reigns there for all time. The right hand of the Father, the place of completion, but also a place of ongoing power, of ongoing involvement. He's completed, yes, his, his salvific work, he has made provision for his people, secured salvation for his people, ascended the right hand of the Father. Yes, he's there, but also his work continues as our high priest will see as we go on. We've looked together before, it was last year now, perhaps the year before, in Psalm 110, we spent time together in that psalm. It reminds us that we worship a risen savior, a risen high priest who is highly exalted who's passed through the heavens. In other words, nothing stopped him. A high priest who completed his work, who is now at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling as our high priest, our saviour, prophet, priest, king. He's there this very moment, brothers and sisters, reigning and ruling. But also there this very moment, as we'll see in the next verse, as our high priest, still serving his people. He sits at the right hand of the Father. We worship an ascended high priest who completed fully all the work that needed to be done, who lived that perfect life, who died that necessary death so his people would be saved. It reminds us of the wonderful words we have Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10, speaking of Jesus. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that of the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's been highly exalted, dear friends. We worship a saviour, the right hand of our father, who's completed the work in that we have confidence that we have full access to the throne of grace because your saviour is there this very moment. A great high priest passed through the heavens, the right hand of the father. And finally, we're reminded once more of our access to the throne of grace the name, the title given to him. Jesus, the Son of God. We're reminded again who our high priest is. Of course, this is not new to any of us. We've heard this, I'm sure many of us have heard this countless times before. But we all need to be reminded daily of the truth of the gospel. We're also prone to forgetting, to feeling as if we're, we're losing the reality of it. Here we're reminded that we worship the one who is Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, Mary's boy, the carpenter who lived, who experienced life, and we'll see that more in the next verse. Jesus, who lived in his full humanity, the perfect life we could never live. The one who represents us now as the high priest. Our high priest, yes, fully human. Fully human. With that, we see the glorious reminder that He alone is the eternal Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God. Fully human, 
and fully divine. Now, dear brothers and sisters, there's no time and indeed my ability and I'm sure our collective ability. The mechanics of that are beyond us. But we confess it and we believe it and we love it. We worship Jesus, fully man, fully God. Our confession helps us here. Uh, confession of Faith, chapter 8, and just a section uh, of, of, of paragraph 2, speaking about Jesus. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. For him to be our high priest, he must be like his people. But also he must be able to perform his duties perfectly. Dear friends, at the end of verse 14, the title of our Savior here gives us that further assurance we have access to the throne of grace, access to God the Father, because we know and we worship the one who is Jesus, who lived a life among his people, but also one who is Son of God, who is fully divine, who in his divinity is all the power and glory and deserving of all the worship of God. But this morning we worship Jesus, our incarnate high priest, who took on flesh, who remained fully God, and who is now fully God and fully man for all time. We'll see that more as we go on. Dear brothers and sisters, those of us here who know Jesus, who love Jesus, this morning we have full reason to hold fast in our confession, full reason to keep on going. Full reason to just believe that we have a high priest, a saviour who has done all the work for his people. We keep on going this morning trusting the fact that we have access to the Father through him. And through his finished work, he has shown us that to be the reality for us. You have access to the Father, brother and sister, this very moment. You can approach the throne of grace. And how often we lack spiritual confidence. This is not just some useful theological knowledge for us. This is not just for us to, to stretch and to flex our, our theological muscles. No, this is real. This is important. As we start this new week, we have to understand we, through our Savior, through our High Priest, we have access to the throne of grace been purchased for us the precious, precious price of his blood. We have access. Then, verse, then we see in, in verse 15, as we find out more about our high priest, the one who has given us access. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we've been reminded through his finished work that we have access to the Father. Because all that he is and all that he has done, we can with confidence hold fast to our confession. We can know for certain just now the wrath of the Father is no longer held against his people. It's been placed on the final sacrifice, placed on Jesus, that he borne on his shoulders the full wrath of the Father, for all the sins of all his people. We confess that, we believe that. And we could stop there and be satisfied with the knowledge that salvation is ours. We could stop at verse 14 and say, yes, okay, I believe it, salvation is mine. I, I trust Jesus, Son of God. I trust him as my high priest. But dear brothers and dear sisters, if we're to be very honest this morning, as much as we affirm that, as much as we affirm and believe and confess that our salvation is found in him and him alone, it's that our salvation finds its completion in him, in him we find our access to the Father, 
We can confess that, we believe that, but it's not a jump. I don't think it's a wild guess to say that many, if not all of us here today, know what it is to feel that solid hold on our confession, that solid hold on our assurance. Sometimes we're a bit less solid than we like. Sometimes we find ourselves thinking, feeling, is it true? Do I really have access? We find ourselves drifting. We find ourselves, if we're very honest, at times holding very loosely to all the assurances we have in Scripture. If we're honest, life is hard. It's okay, okay me just saying that from up here. But you know your own situation. The Lord knows your situation. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes life is very hard. Sometimes things can be extremely uh, dark for us. At times, our journey is very difficult. And it's so incredibly easy for us, even or perhaps especially as Christians, to have this thin veneer over all things. We pretend everything's fine. We just get on to things. It's great. There's no problems, no worries. Life's okay. As the Lord's people, we're not honest with the situation we're facing. Many of us, I'm sure all of us, at times look as if we're okay, as if things are okay, when in reality, things are not okay. In life, at home, spiritually, mentally, physically, whatever situation might be, only you know. But if we're honest, we can all confess and we all, I'm sure, agree. There are times when we're not okay. When life is truly hard, when we are going through or facing situations, or indeed helping those who are going through or facing situations, and we find it perhaps very hard to be honest with each other about the reality of our weakness, the reality of our frailty. It's very hard to open up, even to those we love, to tell them the reality of our situation. I am struggling with this health issue, this mental issue, this sin issue, this life issue, whatever it is, you know your situations, we all find it so hard to be honest. We praise God this day and we find it in verse 15. The God who knows and who sees his creatures, he also sees and knows our weakness too. The high priest, as he's described in verse 14, is exalted, he is glorious, at the right hand of the Father. And we might think for a second that means he is somehow distant, somehow far off, but that is not the high priest we see in verse 15. Verse 15 paints a picture that's quite the opposite for us, doesn't it? See, for all our bluff, all our bluster, our Savior, he knows his people. He knew the people he was coming to save. He knew what it's like to be like us. He lived that life. He knows the realities of pain and of weakness. Dear brothers and sisters, your high priest, he lived a life on earth. We know that. But consider it, he lived a life on earth. He knows this very moment, he knows what it is to experience human emotion, to feel tired, to feel hungry, to feel pain, and so on and so on. In all ways, like us, except through sin. As we approach verse 15, we begin to see the wonderful assurance it gives us as we journey on. It's not just he saves us, and that self, of course, is glorious, but he also knows us. We have a savior, a high priest, in verse 15, who is able to fully sympathize, to fully come alongside us in our pain, in our sufferings, we can quite literally break down the word here, sympathize, and quite literally spell it out as one who suffers along with, to suffer along with. We have a high priest who suffers along with his people. With respect, our high priest doesn't just stand at a distance and look at us and shake his head and think, what a shame. No, he is with us in our sufferings. He's gone before us. He's been through it himself in all ways. He's close to his beloved people. Especially, 
especially in our weakness, especially in their darkness. Again, I know some faces here, but I don't know your situations. The Lord does. If you know Jesus this day, if you know him as your Savior, as your high priest, be assured from verse 15 that even now he is with you. And those who are going through providences and tough situations, you know that verse 15 is not just some theological point. It is a truth for you. The truth that keeps you going, I'm sure, some days. The fact that you know your Savior is with you who does not leave you, does not forsake you. He's a faithful high priest to his people. Weak Christian, suffering Christian, anxious, pained, struggling, tired Christian, your high priest is for you. You know this, but how often we need to be reminded of it. He is for you. Draw near to him in your time of need. He knows you. He knows your situation like no one else does. So in verse 15, we see hope for the suffering Christian. There's even more than that. We also see hope for the tempted Christian. I have to pause for a second here and say that in general, we're quite happy to confess and to say, yes, we believe in Jesus who is fully God We're happy to lay hold of of the divine nature of our high priest. When it comes to fully grasping and to thinking what about the fact he's also fully human, yes, we believe it, we agree to it, we confess it, we hold on to it, but perhaps a bit more reserved when it comes to actually approaching the reality of it. Now, we must look first to the end of verse 15. We confess and we believe our high priest did not sin. He is the perfect, the spotless lamb, the only truly undefiled sacrifice. We proclaim that to be true. We also see in verse 15, we declare and we know we have a high priest who was tempted in every respect as we are. Dear brothers and sisters, there's no wasted words in scripture. We are told here our glorious high priest was tempted in every respect and the word being used here, that every respect, that word there, it's a broad word. In other places in Scripture, that same word is to use to describe things in their entirety. In every respect, he was tempted as his people. Jesus, in his time on earth, dear friends, he was tempted. Dear Christian, your Savior was willing to leave his place of eternity. To, to step down, to take on human flesh, to enter into his own creation, to be tempted to sin, to be tempted to commit acts against his own eternally glorious nature, such as the love of our Savior for his people. Just as he's able to come alongside those who are weak, his beloved people who are suffering, He is just as able to come alongside those who are in the middle of temptation. In our temptations towards sin, we fight and we rail against it, yes, but sometimes, even then, we still fail and find ourselves in sin. Our Savior for his whole life on earth, tempted, yet not once gave in, not once sinned, Richard Lawrence helpfully gives us a brief illustration here for this. Who understands suffering better, he says? The person who, when tortured, gives in and tells his captors everything, or the person who resists despite the fact his torture continues? We who give in to temptation so easily cannot even guess how strong temptation can be. Jesus, who never gave in, knows. Dear brothers and dear sisters, let's stop pretending. We all suffer. We're all tempted. We know that to be a true fact. But just as true as that fact is the truth that we have a Savior who's tempted in all ways, in every respect as we were, but who's without sin. In your temptations, in your continued fight against sin, in your shame and your misery for sinning again, you can take that to your Savior. Indeed, you must take that to your Savior. 
that my children talk about, me breaking the bowl. What happened when I smashed that bowl? The mess is cleaned up. The bowl was soon replaced. What happens to Christian when you come to your Savior? What happens when you come to him and confess your sin? Do you know forgiveness? What happens when you do the opposite? As we're all often tempted to do. We often all hide our faces and go the opposite way. Things become so much harder. He alone knows your weakness. He alone knows your sin. He, through his completed work, has shown you his dear, precious one. He has done all for you. In him alone we find one who was tempted yet did not sin. In him alone we find forgiveness for our sin. Our sinless high priest, the friend of sinners. See, time has gone. Very briefly takes us to our final verse. Approach. We've been reminded of his divinity, reminded of his glory, his power, reminded that he is close to all who are weak, all who are suffering pain and misery, all who are suffering temptation, all who find themselves falling short again and again. He is close to all those. Very briefly we see why that's so important for us. Let us then, in verse 16, same as verse 14, it's a connecting phrase, let us then, because all this is true, what then? Well, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We can approach the throne of grace, dear friends, with confidence. Because the throne of grace used here to convey, in short, the place of God's presence. Come before God in prayer. You can come before God Dear Christian, dear brother, dear sister, you can come before God this very moment because your high priest is there at the right hand. Christian, the question I have to ask you, and only you can answer this, at this moment, do you feel just now that you can approach throne of grace in confidence? Do you feel able to do that? You might be thinking as you hear that question, well, no. It's okay for you up there, but you don't know the week I've had. You don't know the day I've had, the year I've had. The mess my life is in just now. The complete chaos my life is in just now. I feel myself so weak. I don't feel worthy. I don't even feel close to coming before his presence. And all these statements might well be true. It will be the case. And perhaps you're not wrong. But dear brothers and sisters, neither you nor I do deserve to come before the throne of grace. That's the whole point for time together this day. This day, you and I need to come before the throne of grace. And we must do in confidence, not based, of course, on us, but based on verses 14, verses 15, based on the final sacrifice of our great eternal high priest. At times we're tempted perhaps to think it's more respectful or more right to wait until we're more holy. Even as Christians, to wait until we've, we've attained some certain goal before we come back to God in prayer. We're wrong in thinking that. We might wait till we're serving him better, doing things better, feeling better before we come to the throne of grace. Dear Christian, the reality for us is quite the opposite. At your lowest, at your weakest, it is then trusting in his finished work that you must come with confidence to the throne. The confidence, or not yourself, the confidence trusting in your triumphant saviour who knows you, who sympathises with you. A slowness to come to the throne of grace does not reflect a greater sense of holiness. Quite the opposite, a slowness to come to the throne of grace, it shows a lack of full understanding as to who your Savior is, as to what he has done for you. We must come with confidence. There alone we receive mercy, there alone we receive grace. With confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive, assured you will receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Don't go it alone. Dear brother, dear sister, don't go it alone. Stop going it alone. 
Come instead again. Come back to the throne of grace. Come back to the place where there is mercy and grace for you. Your access to it has been purchased with the precious blood of your Savior. Don't delay in coming to the throne of grace. Even this day, you will find mercy and grace from the God of all grace. Again, time is gone, but dear friends here today who as of yet do not know Jesus, we've read together in these verses encouragement for the Christians here to come and to place themselves before Jesus, knowing that before him they have one who knows them and who loves them, one who is their high priest and who cares for them. And the truth is that right now, if as of yet you're outside of Jesus, I know and you know that you can't see understand or feel Jesus like this he's still over you as king and as judge isn't he he's still there as one who you know is there but you're trying to ignore and trying not to think about properly and our plea our genuine plea our, our, our desire our prayer is that even this day even through God's word reading and seeing and hearing again of a wonder of knowing him as savior you would come to know him as your high priest as the one who has done all so that you would be saved. Take nothing to him. The advice is the exact same as we had the Christians. The Christians approach the throne of grace. The Christians approach God in prayer with nothing apart from our Savior's finished work. The same applies for you. If you want to know Jesus for yourself, come to him with nothing. Be honest. He knows you. We said that in verses 11 down to verse 13. He sees and knows. Nothing is hidden. Come to the one who knows you, who sees you, who's done all things so that you may be saved. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Lord of God, we come again before you this day and we thank you for the gift of your word in that we have your true, eternal, perfect word. We give you praise that it's not the jar of clay who stands here, Lord, but it's you and your living word who transforms, who gives new life. We do pray that will be the case today. So we come around again your word, Lord, as we have spent time in it. We ask that those here who are yours, help us to, with confidence, come to your presence, knowing that we can have access. It's been bought for us with our, our Savior's blood. In his final work, in his perfect life, his perfect obedience, and all that he is, nobody continues to be. He is our eternal high priest. That through him we have eternal access to the throne of grace. Lord, help us not to squander that great, uh, beautiful, incredible mercy you've given us. We pray for all those who do not know Jesus as their Savior. Even this day, through the work of your word, we would come to know Jesus as their high priest, come to know him as their eternal Savior and come to worship him, and come to love him. Lord, you alone who changes hearts, and we ask if that would be the case even this day. Help us now to come to sing our final item of praise, to do so of hearts and minds full of worship for you. Go all these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Let's turn to God's word, and turn to Scottish Psalter. Scottish Psalter and Psalm 110. Scottish Psalter, Psalm 110. Like we said, this is a psalm, and we've looked together uh, a year or two ago at this psalm, a messianic psalm, a psalm talking about our Savior. Psalm 110. The Lord did say unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand, till I make thy foes a stool, whereon thy feet may stand. The Lord shall out of Zion send the rod of thy great power, in the midst of all thine enemies, be thou the governor. Psalm 110, verse 1 to 4, to God's praise. The Lord did say unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand, Oh, 
prayer. Lord of God, go before us, we ask the rest of this day. Help our minds and our hearts be set on you and on your things. Take us home in safety, we ask. We do ask the rest of this day, a day you have given us, a day made for your people. Lord, you'd help us to find peace, to find time together, time individually, to spend time in your word, to meditate on it, to give you praise, to sing praises to you. We do pray, if it's your will, as we gather again this evening, bless your servant over your people here. As he again opens up the word, your word goes out. We ask that we bless all those who hear it. Let's call these things in and through and for Christ's precious name's sake. Amen.